Welcome to History Talk, the history podcast for everyone by Origins from Ohio State's History Department. I'm Leticia Wiggins. And I'm Patrick Pagliandi. Thanks for joining us. Nothing about the papacy of Pope Francis has been ordinary. For the first time since 1415, the sitting pope, Pope Benedict XVI, stepped down from his post and a second living pope was chosen. And then the excitement just kept coming. In other firsts and reflecting the global reach and importance of Catholicism, the new pope is the first Jesuit to fill a job and the first pope from the Southern Hemisphere, and the first from Latin America, and the first from outside Europe for more than a thousand years, Pope Francis, the people's pope, as he came to be called, has acted in ways that, if not quite wild and crazy, have certainly stirred the pot. Here's just some of the things he's been up to since ascending to the papacy in March of 2013. He's washed and then kissed the feet of youth prisoners on the Holy Thursday before Easter. He's made public declarations saying that homosexuals, including gay couples, shouldn't be marginalized from the church. Quote Pope Francis, if someone is gay and he searches for the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? On the climate change front, he's urged the preservation of the Amazon rainforest for both ecological reasons and because of the rights of indigenous peoples. Perhaps in a nod to the youthful rebellious side in all of us, he's even been spotted sneaking out of the Vatican in the evening, but, albeit admirably, to feed the homeless. And not only did Pope Francis once own a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, he then auctioned it off for charity. With some 1.2 billion members, Catholics are the largest Christian group in the world. They account for nearly 17% of the world's total religious members, and Muslims, for contrast, account for almost 23%. But what will the papacy of this unusual pope mean for the Catholic Church? What has Francis been doing? How is he changing the Catholic Church, and how should we understand the papacy of Francis in a larger history of the Catholic Church and Christianity? Stay tuned as we discuss these topics with three expert guests up next. I'm Tina Sessa. I'm an associate professor of history. I uh, specialize in late antiquity, which is a period from about 200 to 800. And I work particularly on religious history and the history of the church. And I recently published a book on the history of the papacy in roughly that period. I'm David Brackey. I am the Joe R. Engel Chair in the History of Christianity in the Department of History here at OSU. And um, like Tina, I specialize in the ancient church, but here at OSU I teach courses that cover the entire history of Christianity from its origins to the present. Uh, And I'm Daniel Watkins. I'm an assistant professor at the University of North Florida and a former graduate of, of the PhD program at Ohio State. And I specialize in the history of uh, 18th and 19th century Europe, in particular the the history of the Catholic Church, and even more particularly on the history of the Jesuits and the Society of Jesus. All right, well, thanks uh, to all three of you for joining us today on History Talk. Um, And so a lot of our listeners are very probably aware of certain workings of the Catholic Church and maybe not others. And one of our guests today, David Brackey, even wrote an Origins article before about how global Christianity got, quote, two popes and a primate. Um, So let's maybe just quickly recap how we ended up at this scenario. And so, David, if you want to take us off on this first question. Right. When I wrote about two popes and a primate, what I was addressing is that from 2011 into 2012, there was this kind of confluence where uh, the Roman Catholic Church elected a new pope, the Coptic Orthodox Church elected a new pope, and the Anglican Communion got a new primate. And I kind of discussed why there are these three different worldwide church organizations and they choose their leader where they do. And of course, there are many more organizations than these three, right? There's Greek Orthodox Church. But uh, the main thing to say about the papacy, of course, is that it was shaped, I would say, in terms of that story by um, 
uh, by, first of all, a kind of separation of Christians in the 5th century when Christians who were kind of Eastern, Greek-speaking, and speaking other Eastern languages, and the Latin-speaking church in the West started in some ways to officially go their separate ways and in other ways to kind of slowly drift apart. And then, of course, the Pope's number of flock that he oversees was also very much affected by events in the 16th century when the Protestant Reformations meant that there were new groups that broke off, including the Anglican Communion, which is now also a worldwide organization. And, that's, it, and that's Luther and all of that. Luther, of, of course, started right. all of that, okay. right? Um, but, um, but it's important to recognize that the Roman Catholic Church, which the Pope is in charge of, is by far still the largest organization of Christians with over one billion adherents. So let's get now to Pope Francis. What has this Pope done that really stands out, and how does this fit into the larger history of the Catholic Church? And Dan, we'll, we'll throw this one to you. Right. Well, I mean, there are many things that, that seem to be standing out with, with this Pope, and, and uh, you know, he, he's, he's in some ways a sort of media darling. Um, lots of uh, news outlets like to write about him and the, and the things he's doing. But uh, I think the thing that, that strikes me, and maybe this is, is telling because of my background, is is that he is the, the first Jesuit to be a pope, and um, and I think that that background, his background as a Jesuit in, in the Society of Jesus, is is quite telling about the sorts of things that he's done and the sorts of um, things that he's he's sort of looked at as as his central projects for his papacy. In particular, I think the the, the important thing to remember is that the Jesuits were a, a missionary organization, right? They were um, from their inception a body of of um, the church that was aimed at, at sort of works of mercy and works of charity, but also works of evangelization and reaching out to um, communities all over the world, uh, right, and, and sort of spreading the Catholic faith. Um, and it seems like Francis is, is very sort of in touch with that. He's, he's very in touch with the idea of the church sort of going out. In fact, he he, he wrote a, a recent encyclical called the uh, Evangelii Gaudium, where he, he sort of uh, has this, this phrase of he, he wants to call for a church which goes forth, right? Um, a very sort of active church that, that is, uh, you know, with people where, where they are, right? Meets people where they are um, and shows, a, I think he says, an endless desire to show mercy, right? So he's, he's a pope that is sort of action-centered, um, rather than, uh, I think, his predecessor, Benedict, who was, who was uh, very sort of theologically centered. He, he was, a, he was a, a, an intellectual in a lot of ways, and, um, and Francis seems to be a, a slight contrast in that respect. Yeah, I would also point out that he chose the name Francis, yeah. which, of course, is a, not, is a very uh, grand gesture to the figure of Francis of Assisi, who was a reformer. And I think one of the models that Pope Francis is very deliberately um, embracing is that of as a reformer, particularly with respect to uh, social justice issues, which have for a very long time been for many Catholics, what keeps them in the church, despite all the other things that have happened, it's this core commitment to questions about poverty and and uh, a kind of uh, a uh, not a, ref a refusal to to kill or to you know against the death penalty and against abortion. And I think by 
positioning himself with respect to to Francis, he's very deliberately trying to invoke that tradition, which is long. I mean, there are many, many reformer popes. To echo what uh, both of you all are saying, I mean, uh, people kind of say about Francis, well, he's changing the tenets of the church and so right. forth and so on. No, I mean, these, these em- this emphasis on mission and on the poor and so on has been there all along. And certainly when certain um, uh, right-wing people in the United States have said, oh, Francis is a Marxist or a communist, mm-hmm. I mean, he's just saying Catholic social teaching that has yes. been around... For, for centuries, quite, exactly, centuries yeah. and, and centuries. Right. So, he, so in that way, he's um, what I think has happened. That's that's quite different. Is that he's talking about these things rather than, say, sex. I mean, I think exactly, that's... exactly. And I think he's. I think that's deliberate too. I mean, I think <laughs> there's a way in which he's trying to shift the conversation and the focus of the conversation toward aspects of the Catholic Church that many Catholics and many non-Catholics can kind of agree are positive, productive goals as opposed to these other incidences that have happened in the last 50, 60 years that are less positive. Great. So this is actually an excellent transition to our next question. And so Pope Francis underscores a tension, I think, between what the Vatican says and does versus what actually happens in national and local churches. Um, so what, to, to what extent is the church a centralized, quote-unquote, operation where everyone takes marching orders from the CEO, and to what extent is it not? And Tina, if you want to take us off here. I mean, if I would just begin by saying I think the idea of the church as a company with a chief executive officer is, is false. And I think that's a really kind of unhelpful way of understanding what the church is. It is certainly an organization. It is certainly an institution. But I don't think we should measure it with respect to how we would measure a an American capitalist business. Um, and by the way, many, many people do this. There are lots of books written right, right. by economists trying to make these arguments. And I think often they fall flat because they're missing a number of really key points, and one of which is kind of the, the premise of your question, which is there's always been a great deal of tension and, and decentralization to the way that the church has operated. And I think that's been both a problem, but also in some ways it's created a, a whole series of possibilities for local uh, clergy to develop their own authority in relationship to to the laity. Um, and I think that the the Pope himself has always been aware that there are these local um, figures of authority. You have more connections to people on the ground, as it were. And that's not always a problem. I mean, even if you're not in line, that's not always a problem. Um, and I would say that the I, I would say that you know we shouldn't expect some sort of absolute coherence. There's really never been that. Um, and sometimes that can turn out to be more of a problem than it is. Uh, I, I will jump in and, and say that I think that there is, um, you know, where you might be able to find a little bit of, of the sort of centralizing stamp uh, on the church, um, and in particular in, in sort of the case of Francis, is, is through some of his appointments. 
Um, if you look at some of the people that he appoints to um, some of the major sort of offices of the church, um, you can you can sort of see a little bit of a flavor that he's he's trying to cultivate. At the very least, a sort of leadership model that he's trying to um, sort of put forth. I think a, a really good example is the most recent um, appointment to the Archbishop of Chicago, uh, a guy named Blaise Kupich, who was uh, formerly uh, or previously the, the Bishop of Spokane, and I think actually he was the the rector of the Pontifical College, uh, Josephinum there in Columbus for a little bit. But um, anyways, he's, he's very much sort of cut from the same cloth as Francis. He's a, a sort of moderate on, on many of the kind of theological, the, the you know, pressing sort of theological issues uh, of the day, but um, in a more sort of uh, uh, descriptive uh, way, he, he kind of emphasizes the same sorts of um, behavior that, that Francis does. So, for example, Francis is sort of famously taken up residence, not in the papal uh, apartments, right, but in a, a sort of uh, local place, you know, nearby, right, a, a more kind of humbler thing. And this has been a, a, um, a thing that a lot of people paid attention to. Well, the, Kupich has, has done a similar sort of thing. Uh, the Archbishop of Chicago has this nice uh, brick uh, I don't want to call it a mansion, but, you know, a nice brick uh, 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 building that the Archbishop <laughs> has always resided in on the north side of Chicago. And uh, and he, he tellingly just recently uh, declared that he was going to live in the rectory of the cathedral instead of in this in this mansion. And, I, you know, it, it might be um, just sort of window dressing. I don't know. But but at the very least, it indicates a sort of. Um, an appearance that Francis seems to want to cultivate, right, um, among the leaders of the church. And so um, that, to me, that, that, that's a little telling, right? I mean, that tells you a little bit at least of, of what Francis wants the church to be perceived as, um, you know, by, by Catholics and, and potentially non-Catholics as well. Right, and I, I think to the extent that Francis's view of what the church should be is going to stick, so to speak, um, he's going to have to have a pontificate that lasts a certain period of time because, I mean, his major way of, of changing the local scene, so to speak, is to make these appointments mm. of bishops oh, and okay. archbishops. And right now what he has is a bunch of bishops and archbishops that were appointed by John Paul II and mm. Benedict XVI, many of whom don't necessarily share the same vision that he has. And so the question is whether he will be able over the long period of time to make those kinds of appointments. And that's where you're going to really see change closer to where the people are if, if he's able to make more appointments like he's done in Chicago over time. Right. And I guess I would just point out from an historical perspective that that precise issue has always been a problem where you have very different people in charge at different levels who who basically get their office through various at different times. And so in, in a way, you know, we, we don't – one of the kind of, I think, reasons why John Paul II was so incredibly um, effective in changing the church was because he was pope for so long. <laughs> oh, right. and, yeah, yeah. and, you know, unless we have another person who can be pope for decades and decades, it just – that kind of changeover, it, 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 it's really not – it, it makes it impossible to create a top-down centralized church in many ways, mm, unless you for everybody. I mean, you have to, you, you have to have your men at all levels, and how mm. can you do that if if you're constantly cycling through popes? And I should say, the cycling through popes is something again that's that's historical. Typically, popes were not in office for decades and decades and decades. Mm. That's right. 
And so looking at and tying the past two questions together pretty well, actually, we're looking at these actions of Pope Francis and wondering if they're unprecedented in a way. You kind of talk about this action-centered versus theologically-centered different, I guess, trajectories of these popes. But to specify a bit more, is there a split maybe between those in the church who see a need to change and evolve in the modern world and those who hold with core beliefs seen as permanent and unchanged? Well, yes, there is, there is kind of a, a, a split among people that way. And the, the, I mean, what's, I mean, obviously Vatican II itself is something that um, I think remains, uh, on the one hand, a kind of unfinished project. Um, it started something that I think um, has not completely, its vision of what the church should be perhaps has not been fully worked out. Um, and on the other hand, there's been a lot of resistance to it at the same time. Um, I mean, if you trace how the church officially and its structure and so on has responded to what we call modernity from, say, the middle of the 19th century to the present, it's been a struggle of kind of going back and mm. forth from Vatican I, which kind of asserted, you know, all this stuff is going around on around us, but we're going to say the Pope is mm. the source of all truth. And, to, you know, and then there were various events between that and the present. Um, I, I mean, I think the important thing to see is that I think what Francis is kind of exposing is a um, change in what people think are the core tenets and beliefs of the church. I mean, no one is talking about getting rid of the Trinity or, you know, belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for people's sins, or any any of these kind of what I would call the core beliefs of the Catholic Church. I mean, what has rankled people are things like, well, maybe we'll let uh, divorced and remarried Catholics take communion. So the question becomes, what is what are these core tenets and beliefs, and what does it mean to change on and and, and I mean on certain social issues like slavery is a great example. The Church has changed dramatically over the years. Oh, fascinating. So, you know, it's, yes, it, there's always a struggle between what is one's core identity and what does it mean to maintain the faith despite change? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, how does one speak to the world that one is in and not the world that it existed, say, 1,200 years ago? Right, and if I could just add to that, I mean, one of the big dilemmas I would assume many Catholics are having right now is what makes them different from Protestants, right? And, <laughs> and, and, one, and one of the things that makes them different from Protestants, just to name one thing, is um, the, the, the issue about female priests. Um, the Catholic Church categorically rejects the possibility of women being ordained, whereas this has been something that Protestant nominations have for a very long time accepted. Um, but the question is, if, if the Catholic Church starts ordaining women, is it still the Catholic Church? And I, I think some people would say yes, but I think a lot of people would say no. And so uh, now, uh, maybe unfortunately, the podcast has to take a bit of a dark turn. Um, and so we had wanted to ask, what about all the sexual assault problems? Um, is this an issue that ultimately Pope Francis will be judged on? And Dan, uh, we'd like to throw this question to you first. Oh, you you, you <laughs> send me as a sheep to the slaughter here. <laughs> yeah, sorry uh, about that. Someone had to be first, yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how to respond to this. I mean, I, I think that... Obviously, it's it's an issue that remains very important to to the church, to people's perception of the church, and uh, and to the place of the church in in a lot of just uh, civil states as well, right? Uh, the relationship with with um, you know civil authorities and and, and things. And um, I mean, I think that 
Francis is getting some pressure for to, to make sort of larger statements about this. Um, there are instances of him handling individual um, episodes, you know, and and uh, defrocking clergy and things who, who have uh, had you know these accusations brought against them. I think he, you know, he's met with with victims of sexual assault, and so he's he's tried to sort of do this and you know handle this this issue in various ways. If you know, as to the question of of is this going to sort of define or or judge his 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 papacy, or is this the issue that that people will judge his papacy? I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I I think that this has been around for a little while now, right? And um, I'm not sure if this is how we or or the media or I'm not I'm not sure who we're even talking about, but uh, you know would judge the 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 prior papacies of of John Paul II and and Benedict. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I think. Francis is making a huge effort to not be judged by this. And I think one of the reasons why he's tilted toward this position of being this kind of reformer, uh, social justice champion is to, in some, and, and you're right, I mean, it's very savvy with respect to the media, is to actually shift the news cycle to, mm, to turn okay. it toward these other issues that Catholics can line up about and feel good about. And sort of turn us away from the issues that Catholics can't feel good about. Judging his historians who swim in these topics every day, are Francis's action more Christ-like then? That is, is he following more closely in the footsteps of how Christ is said to have lived his life? <laughs> um, I guess, I mean, I think two things have to be said. First of all, what does it mean to be Christ-like? Um, and I'm not being coy here. I do think that this is an issue, a question that Christians have been debating amongst themselves for centuries and centuries and centuries. Um, the other point to make is, well, how, how so say, let's say Christ, like, is this kind of figure, this sort of ascetic figure whose entire worldview is, is oriented around helping those who are poor and disempowered, um, who is anti, I mean, this is obviously one vision of Christ, other people might have a different one, who's anti-material gain. How do you then run a large organization? I mean, how do you put yourself in a position of being in power? How do you be humble and and authoritative at the same time. I mean, this again, this is something that I think Christian uh, clerics have been and, and monks have been struggling with for centuries. And so I think to what extent we will say Francis is Christ-like depends on, I guess, what you mean is by being Christ-like. But I also think that it's in some ways it's an impossible role to fulfill for somebody who's in the job that he's in. I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, I, I do not doubt at all that Francis, as he thinks about what he should do and so on, thinks things like, what would Jesus do? Or better, probably he thinks, what would Jesus have me do uh, in my situation? Um, but it's not straightforward how to translate what, however one thinks of the example of Christ into the kind of role that this is. I think most popes, I mean, I can't enter their minds, but based on various things that they say and do, like choosing names, I think they often look to previous popes, actually, as their primary um, oh, example and okay. historical examples of people who have gone before. Of what I mean, certainly when Benedict chose his mm -hmm. name, he was thinking back to St. Benedict, and Benedict XVI was like, my goal right now is to bring Europe back to Christ. 
Uh, and so Benedict was a, you know, the saint who had originally done all this evangelization among the quote unquote pagans of Europe, um, was that was his choice. And so I think they look to their predecessors that they consider to have been saintly, to have been holy, and to have been effective in doing the job as their primary role models. And I think those are the kinds of steps, I think, in practical terms, who do they model themselves after? I think it's the popes that they admire and think we're right. good. Right. I mean, Christ didn't run the church, right? I mean, there <laughs> right, was no right. church to run. So he's he can be inspirational in terms of how he's remembered in sources like the Gospels, but ultimately he's not running an organization. And so there's going to be always a limit to how how helpful he'll be as a as a model. And I think David's right. It tend, you look toward the more obvious sort of institutional precedents as opposed to Christ. Yeah, and I, I would just add in, I mean, I, mean, I, I do think that um, it's interesting to read Francis's writings and, and some of the addresses he's made, because I do think that there is a, there's a sort of language that he's trying to um, cultivate that is one uh, that I think is a little more reminiscent of Gospels than, than of sort of a Pauline epistle or, or something like that, right? It's, it's, uh, it's a little simpler, it's a little more direct language, um, and so I know that that's, that's not answering the, the same question of are Francis's <laughs> actions more Christ-like, but I, do, uh, but I do think that there is a sort of similarity in language that if he's, yeah. if he's modeling himself, he, he's modeling himself off of the language of the Gospels more so, I think, than, than the language of, of yeah. some of the other um, right. you know, parts of Scripture. And, yeah. and it's worth pointing out that uh, Francis of Assisi was not a pope. Yeah. <laughs> so right. on some level, there's, you know, he's, he is looking to, to other types of, of church figures, um, in this case, a, a more of a monastic figure um, than he is to, uh, specifically to a, to a pope. Although I do think on some level that has to be the model that he embraces. And this question is who? I mean, who would be his papal model? It's a good... <laughs> It's a good question. I know. I was thinking about. I mean, certainly the the most recent pope who who he reminds me of would probably be John the twenty third. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, right. You know. I mean, you know, when you look back and and take the kind of long historical view of the popes that we kind of see as reformer popes, what struck me is how brief most of their reigns were. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. You know, and huh. um, I mean, the most famous example has to be Adrian the Sixth, right, who um, was elected in 1522, which was, you know, just five years after Luther nailed his 95 theses, <laughs> you know, and started this whole Protestant Reformation thing. And Adrian, who was Dutch, came in and said, you know, the church needs to be reformed top to bottom. He was scathing, and, his, and he said, we have to do this, we have to do it now. And then he died the next year. And he, you know, the, the joke is he sh so shook up the folks who are running the Vatican that they didn't elect another non-Italian until John Paul II, right? <laughs> century. But, but when you think of these people, John Twenty-Third, for example, and even think of the one month of John Paul I, who was also a kind of media darling for that one month. He was the first pope to not be crowned in a coronation ceremony, right? Mm -hmm. So it's... Um, it will be interesting to see if he has an extended period, how that works out. Because we often see, even John Paul II, remember, the first year or so, he was a media darling. He was the skiing pope, you know, he was young That's and right. he skied and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so um, 
So a lot of these kind of reforming popes, it seemed to me, are these people who come in and they make a big kind of thing for a kind of brief period of time. They don't have those kind of long pontificates, which I think tend to then mire the person in that job of running this giant organization. Well, and that's something um, our listeners can keep an eye out for in the future. Um, so thank you to our three guests, Tina Sessa, David Brackey, and Dan Watkins, for joining us today on History Talk. Thanks to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a bunch. This edition of the Origins Podcast, History Talk, was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Koheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Payandi and Leticia Wiggins. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.